it's never too late to follow your calling. Depending on where you are in life, there are many ways you can reorient and choose a new path for yourself, be it getting a second degree, growing your minor or a hobby into your main focus, or getting a certification in your domain of interest. This week, we'll hear about how our guest went from a bachelor's in theater to a PhD in neuroscience, and eventually to a fulfilling career as a startup CEO. Before we go on to the interview, I wanted to share with you that we just passed the 500 listens mark this week, and thank every one of you for tuning in. If you haven't done it yet, follow us on Facebook or on Twitter for updates and visit the Papa PhD Patreon page to become a supporter. Welcome to the show. Today we're talking with Christopher Kent, PhD, President and CEO of ODS Medical. Chris has served as the CEO of ODS Medical since its founding in 2015. ODS Medical is a medical device company commercializing an exclusive Raman spectroscopy system for real-time intraoperative tumor margin detection during surgical oncology procedures. Prior to ODS Medical, he worked with Dr. Kevin Patreka, building a translational research program at the Montreal Neurological Institute, focused on working with industry partners to accelerate the discovery and preclinical development of a wide variety of small molecules and biologics for treatment of brain cancers. Prior to his work at the MNI, Chris was involved with a startup that specialized in the application of stimuli-responsive polymer materials to a wide range of industries. So, welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks for having me. So, let us know uh, a little bit more about yourself and uh, how how you came to work where you do today. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, I think like a lot of people who... um, embark on a on a research career uh they often find themselves in places that they they didn't really anticipate and uh it's not usually a straight line uh journey um and so i've taken a long yeah a, lo- a long and twisted road <laughs> to sort of get here um and it's you know uh, followed a, a, a strange series of events um I started out uh, actually in the theater world uh, in Toronto. Uh, it was my first sort of professional career. Uh, worked in production and directing uh, for a number of years there. Uh, and then sort of took the fairly difficult decision to restart everything um, by going back and doing a second undergrad in developmental biology at the University of Toronto. And following that, uh, had spent some time in some labs at the Hospital for Sick Children uh, and learned uh, a little bit about some of the things that was going on at the Montreal Neurological Institute. Uh, And having had family roots in Montreal, uh, both my wife and I um, were really excited by the prospect of of moving to Montreal after a number of years in Toronto. Uh, And so uh, we sort of took that time in our lives to make a big change and move to Montreal. Uh, and I started the PhD program uh, at McGill uh, in neuroscience uh, and worked in the lab of uh, Dr. Alison Fournier at the Montreal Neurological Institute. Um, I did a lot of my PhD work focused on um, axon guidance. Uh, that's an area I know that you're quite familiar with. Um, and looking at different uh, you know, uh, intercellular signaling pathways um, that um, allowed for nerve cells to uh, get to their proper destinations uh, during development and then um, how those pathways change after injury and how those can be sort of 
um, targets for intervention to allow better regrowth of, of nerves uh, after injury. And um, yeah, like a lot of people, uh, grad school was a bit of a struggle. I, I mean, things all in all went pretty well, but there were lots of, uh, lots of very late nights, lots of uh, heading into the lab at uh, all hours and you know, uh, trying to get things to work and struggling with sort of some, some very basic science problems. Uh, but, uh, after kind of grinding it out for, for a number of years was able to finish. Um, and I think through that process, I learned that research was, you know, pure bench research was probably not my strongest, um, area, but that I really enjoyed the intellectual challenges and the, the sort of more conceptual challenges that came with research. And I think the biggest thing was wanting to find an area like a lot of people where you could take the work that was being done, um, in lab. And you know, by a lot of scientists that were much better than myself, uh, and find ways to give it life outside of the lab. You know, you know, make it sort of have impact in the real world. And so, having sort of ruled out a research career, um, I was left with the prospect of trying to find a different path forward. Um, I, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to a lot of different people. And I think one area that kind of caught my attention and, and I was very intrigued by was the area of intellectual property and the role of establishing intellectual property assets in uh, both protecting but also um, giving rise to opportunity to commercializing assets that are, de- are, are developed in the lab and, and, and sort of putting that that underpinning under a lot of the things that that are are done in in research labs. And so I spent a lot of time talking to patent agents in and around Montreal and um, had sort of originally not decided but uh, targeted the the potential for uh, becoming a patent agent myself and and trying to figure out what that career path looked like. But along the way, I, you know, well, uh, there was a few things. One was the timing was terrible. Uh, you know, when I finished my uh, my PhD, uh, it was right after the crash. Uh, you know, there was really not much of a biotech um, industry left in Montreal. A lot of people were packing up and leaving town. And we had just had our first child and, and we were really committed to staying in Montreal. It's a great city to, to live in, a great place to raise kids. And so, um, I, you know, I was sort of struggling with how... Uh, I was going to, to to move forward on that path, but I was speaking with with friends and you know as uh, as you do and and you start networking around and I had the opportunity to uh, speak with the founder of a, uh, a startup company here in Montreal who was going through a first round of financing and and I was very intrigued by the you know type of things that that her company was doing. Um, and I asked her about, you know, the role of, of intellectual property and, um, what kind of work she had done, you know, in that area in order to support this financing activity. And it was pretty clear that, you know, she was just, uh, getting into this process and that, uh, she needed help. And, and like a lot of startups do, you have to be very opportunistic about, um, you know, getting things done for as cheaply and as quickly as possible. <laughs> and so I, I sort of offered my services and said, look, you know, I'm not an expert by any means, but I know enough in terms of how to structure um, uh, prior art searches and, and, and patent searches that I can put together sort of a, you know, uh, at least a basic search document for you for your, your diligence package. And so she said, sure, that sounds great. And um, I sort of did that on the side as I was wrapping things up in the lab. 
And um, one thing sort of led to another and that financing went forward. And uh, she came back to me with an offer to, to join the company and it's sort of in its you know, new phase uh, with an investor on board. And so that became a whole new thing. I, I joined the company. I was called BioAstra Technologies. Uh, and at the time, you know, it was a very new company. Uh, you know, I think I was employee number two or three. And we had a number of clients already, which was great. But it was, it was a long journey. I mean, we spent a number of years trying to figure out what the sort of core business model was and, and how to take some very interesting technology and, and actually try to build a business around it. And it was definitely not something I had trained to do at all. But uh, you know, sometimes you just have to take a, a leap of faith. And it was an opportunity to stay in Montreal and try to figure things out. And so as we rolled forward, uh, you know, we were, again, quite opportunistic, uh, you know, pursued a number of um, what are called open innovation challenges. Um, we were able to identify a number of problems that we thought we were very well positioned to solve. Uh, we engaged with some very large clients and we were able to sort of pull together the beginnings of a business and, and the beginnings of a, 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 an IP portfolio and, and some, some core assets uh, within the company. Uh, and it was, it was an amazing experience. I mean, it was a lot of ups and downs, very, very challenging. Um, but I got to the point uh, in that company where I realized that the opportunity to learn was fantastic, but the actual technology for me was not all that interesting. I mean, it was very rooted in some some pure chemistry and, and polymer chemistry, and I was not a chemist. And I really wanted to find an opportunity to take all those business skills that I had learned and bring it to an area where I felt like I could have more impact and and um, and get very passionate about sort of the, the mission of, of, of the company uh, or the opportunity. And so, uh, so I made the decision to leave uh, that company. Uh, and then around the same time, I was starting to look around for different opportunities. Uh, and I had the good fortune to go in and speak with uh, Dr. Kevin Petreka, who's now the chief of neurosurgery um, at the Montreal Neurological Institute. And uh, hit it off with him right away. Uh, you know, had some very, very interesting conversations. And it was pretty clear that he was working on some really interesting problems um, in the area of glioblastoma and, and uh, primary brain tumors. And what was fascinating to me was that it was actually, from the science side, a pretty easy jump because a lot of the signaling pathways and um, sort of core cellular biology that I had worked on in my PhD were actually directly applicable to some of the main challenges in glioblastoma. So you felt at home right away? Yeah, absolutely. And so I I joined Kevin's lab as a, as a postdoc on paper. So uh, this was really where you know I decided I could I could be of value and and use the business skills that um, I had had developed in our, in my previous role um, to try to sort of move the needle forward. And so while technically on paper I was a postdoc, a lot of my research um, involved setting up these collaborations with companies and. Um, establishing research plans that could either accelerate their own programs or help them contribute to our own internal program for for targeting therapeutics um, in glioblastoma. And so, you know, I think my first task very early on, one of the first tasks when I showed up was to apply for this granting program that was run by the province at the time. And this was a 65-page grant, which I had about three weeks to write. Um, and because then I had to get the whole thing translated into French, and I had to have it reviewed by two external experts, um, and then get their comments translated into French. 
And so we, you know, it was like an all out sprint for three weeks to get that done. Uh, we put it together. I thought it was a, you know, amazing package. And, um, you know, I think it was an application for about 750,000. It really would have, you know, put the, um, the foundation in place to, to set up our own program. Uh, and we got the grant approved. You know, we got word back from the ministry that they, they had approved the application, but that the budget was under negotiation. And so they weren't sure for how much. And then, and two weeks later, there was an election, and then uh, there was a change in government, and then we got word that the program had been canceled and that we were back to square one. And so, you know, that's where the, the focus shifted more onto these these industry collaborations and trying to get those in place. But what's what's interesting is that you know when you're in that kind of environment, there's a lot of active research and. There are, you know, you may have your own program uh, or your own um, set of, of questions that you're looking at, but there's other, there's always other things sort of happening in parallel. And one of the things that was happening in Kevin's group, uh, alongside the stuff that we were working on on the on the more sort of biotech side, was on the, the medical technology side. Uh, Kevin was collaborating with a professor at Ecole Polytechnique um, called uh, Fred Leblanc. And Kevin and Fred were pursuing the use of different optical um, technologies to provide better guides to surgeons uh, in identifying um, cancerous tissues live during surgery. Uh, and so Kevin and Fred were, were attempting to address this problem by finding ways to do what would be called, I guess, molecular imaging. Um, and this is to use optical um, modalities that are capable of gathering information of the tissue at a molecular level to provide an indication to the surgeon as to whether there's cancer cells present, present or not. And that uh, program was sort of going on uh, uh, in parallel to what I was doing. And I was aware of it, but to be honest, I, 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 I was not really involved at all in the, in the original research. Um, but what happened was the postdoc who was really leading the charge was a computer science person that, that was working with Fred. And he really brought um, some interesting machine learning techniques to bear on um, the use of Raman spectroscopy, this one particular optical modality. Um, and they published a paper in Science Translational Medicine that showed these very promising results in the use of Raman spectroscopy and machine learning for identifying the presence of diffusely invasive cancer cells um, around that, that margin, around that solid tumor. And, but the postdoc uh, had sort of indicated that he was not that interested in the commercialization of this technology. He really wanted to pursue a, a research-based career and, and was looking more at opportunities uh, in academia. And so Kevin and Fred called me in and sort of said, look, you know, we've gotten this technology up to this point where things are getting really interesting. We think there's really huge promise here, but neither one of us are really willing to quit our jobs. So how about you? <laughs> and so it became pretty clear that they were presenting me with this opportunity to really take the ball and run with it. And, and that, you know, it sort of became a, a, a moment where I was faced with the choice of, of putting it all on the line and pulling together everything that I had been working on up until that point and, and really trying to make a, a reality out of it. Um, and so it was definitely a high risk decision at that point. I mean, uh, my wife and I were just about to have, just about to have our second child. 
Um, and uh, we were going to have to convert our house from a duplex into a single family home to have enough space. And so taking on that kind of risk at that point in time felt like absolutely the craziest thing to do. Um, but, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, looking very carefully at, at, at the technology that, and the, the problem that they were working on, uh, speaking with all the people that were involved and seeing if it was really something where I could add a lot of value. And, and, and at some point just said, yeah, this is, you know, this is sort of what I set out to do uh, a few years ago. It's not exactly, you know, the area that I thought I would be doing it in, but, uh, but, you know, I, I think there is, there's room for me to contribute, uh, you know, a huge amount of value. And I think, I think I can, I think I can make this work. Um, and so, yeah, I jumped in with both feet and that was four years ago. And now we're a full-time team of 15 people. Uh, we had almost $2 million in revenue last year. Uh, we launched, uh, we just launched, a, a, an early clinical study at the M and I, um, three weeks ago, we're looking at launching another study, um, uh, fairly soon in the next, uh, probably the next two months or so, um, in Europe, uh, and in neurosurgery. And now we're actually looking at, uh, pursuing um, other margin detection um, problems in, in other oncology procedures. Um, so we're, we're super excited. It's, uh, things are really taking off. It's, it's been quite a ride. Yeah, it sounds like you have, uh, you're not going to run out of work soon. <laughs> no, there's, I, you know, honestly, if you're, if, if you're in an area where you're passionate about it and the opportunity is there, there's never a shortage of things to do. So. <laughs> Awesome. Well, you know, uh, that's a very, very uh, colorful story, let's say. And there's a lot of things that I'd like to talk about. You started with, uh, you know, doing a bachelor's in theater, right, in that domain. And uh, this is where you are today. And, uh, oh my gosh, I have so many questions that I want to ask. <laughs> But, uh, you know, maybe given that you, you were just talking about, uh, about the, the business aspect and, uh, and uh, taking, risk, taking the risk of, you know, of taking on this project that wasn't the one that you were planning for you know, to begin with, maybe uh, I could start by, by asking you, you know, for sure, uh, from four years to today and from eight years to today and from you know, whenever you finished your PhD to today, there's been a, a kind of a... Steepish learning curve that you've had to go through, or multiple ones actually. And the first one I would say uh, would be finishing when once you finished the PhD and and uh, figured out that that you wanted to you know to go either to industry or or something uh, other than than going to an uh, an academic postdoc. You must have uh, taken some time to to take to take this decision, or was it a, a realization that that path was not for you? Yeah, I mean, I think the realization that that the, the academic path was not for me was something that it's something that occurred to me pretty early on. I don't, I don't think that took too long to figure out. You know, one of the the ironies is that having made a giant switch in career paths earlier on, it's a huge pivot. Yeah, but it, it also meant that I was in grad school at a time in my life where. I couldn't really afford to jump ship again. You know, there, there, there was definitely a sense that, okay, I'm figuring this out, but, you know, I need to see this part of it through. So I think I had realized fairly early on that the, the, the pure academic um, path was not going to be for me. Um, 
you know, I, I don't think I shut the door on it. I mean, certainly, you know, d- did the homework to figure out, okay, well, if I do wind up doing a postdoc, um, where would that be? And who, you know, who can I talk to about that? And so, you know, I, I put a fair amount of time into that as well. But I'd, I'd say I put a lot more time and effort into looking at other alternatives, including, you know, management consulting, um, IP uh, law and IP practice. Um, industry. You know, it's funny, I guess, I don't think I ever really spent that much time looking too closely at industry. Maybe that was just the timing, but I never really got the sense that I would have been happy in an industry lab as a scientist. Um, And at that point in my career, I don't think the startup world was not really something I had even considered. (laughs) It was not was not really high up on the radar. I, I kind of fell into it by accident. Yeah, that was going to be my follow-up. But so you said that. So you said that you had this feeling like fairly soon. You know, once you had started your PhD, that okay, I'm not going to follow this path, and uh, and uh, I'm going to do something else. That that you then identified. Uh, what what resources did you make use of, and and what was the process for you of identifying? Okay, this is this is the domain that interests me, and uh, you know how how did you get from Okay, I'm still working on my PhD and uh, and I still have to finish it. But I'm looking, I'm building a kind of a, a kind of a, a dossier of uh, okay, this is what interests me. I'd like to work in this domain. I may need to talk with this person. How did you go about, you know, gathering the information? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because I think this is a process that I remember starting back then. But honestly, I don't think I've stopped since then. <laughs> And, and really like there wasn't any big master plan to it. It was just like talk to as many people as I could get a number for and ask them the most pressing questions that I could think of. I mean, there was a lot of just data gathering. It was, you know, um, at conferences going to talk to other PIs and talking to the other PIs at, at the MNI or within the graduate program. And, you know, they would put me in touch with a postdoc or somebody they had worked with uh, during their postdoc who was doing something, you know, completely different. And, um, you know, I honestly, during that whole process, I think one of my biggest mentors, one of the people I spend the most time talking to uh, was the wife of a committee member. You know, it was, uh, it was that sort of random connection. And, and, and really, you, you know, you just, you never know where the next sort of opportunity is going to come from. So, you know, a lot of it is just being as opportunistic as possible and and going out and talking to as many people as possible. And then the other side of it is just listening to yourself and, and understanding what is it that you find interesting? What is it that you want to follow up on? And, um, and you know, be ready for when the opportunity presents itself because you don't know where it's going to come from or, or who it's going to come from. But if you have a sense of what it is you're looking for, you'll, you'll sort of be able to jump on it when you see it. Um, that was a big part of it was just like, you know, talking, 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 lots of lunches, lots of coffees, lots of, you know, the one great thing about being a grad student is that although you have got way more work than time, you know, you can sort of set your own schedule. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, you can, sure. You know, you can be available to go and have lunch or have coffee with whoever around their schedule, and then make up for the time later. You know, and uh, and and that way you can you can be there. You know, to 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 have those conversations. Cool. And um, so it seems uh, from what you're saying that a lot of these conversations 
you didn't even need to uh, go too much out of uh, the university environment to start having them because yeah, absolutely. I mean, you start with the people, you know, right. I mean, it's, the, that's always the easiest, but like, it, you know, it's funny cause back then I don't even know if LinkedIn existed, but, um, it was, you know, sort of in the, the earlier days of, of social networking and, you know, before we had all those tools available, but, but we all did that anyways. Right. And you, you start with the people, you know, and then you talk to the people they know, and then you talk to the people that, those people know <laughs> and so on and so on and so on. Um, and, and honestly, I think some of the best conversations or some of the best connections came from other grad students that were trying to do the same thing or, or slightly different things. Um, and you know, you can find those people by just going and talking to them or, you know, sometimes, uh, what helps, uh, I remember doing things like, finding um, the management consulting club or, you know, starting a, a, a club or an activity or something that will attract like-minded people, but they're always going to be a little bit different. And so you kind of get exposure on their perspective and their network and who, you know, who they've been talking to. And that, that can help a lot. It starts to, to build momentum around that. Yeah. Some cross-pollination there. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, and now, you know, you did that, big pivot from you know theater to the to the to biosciences and then the the pivot afterwards you know after your phd could you do you think i think you've kind of touched upon it a little bit before but could you sum up one or two principles you know for people who are now either uh, either considering a change like you like you did early on or you know that are in in grad school and thinking okay i'm i'm going to finish grad school but uh, i have i have another plan for after You know, what, what key principles do you think you can find that were common in the two pivots that you did and that, that you know, that were key for, for, uh, for doing a successful pivot? Yeah, I think probably the, the first biggest principle is, is to know yourself and to listen to yourself. Um, you have to be really honest about, about things with yourself in terms of what motivates you, uh, you know, what, what, why are you doing this? You know, so, uh, I think grad school is a perfect example for that because grad school, you know, there's a huge temptation to, to undertake a PhD or, or to sort of enroll in that program because it's the next logical step, but being the next logical step is not a reason unto itself. And, and I, I think you, you have to really, you know, have that conversation with yourself to try to figure out why it is you want to do what you want to do. Um, because if you don't know, then it's going to be very hard for you to, to make a choice. And, and I think that's the, the second sort of core principle is, is just that idea of making a choice. Like if, if you've listened to yourself, if you've done that kind of homework with yourself, like I said before, you know, if, if you kind of know what it is you're looking for, you'll know it when you see it. Uh, and that allows you to take advantage of that opportunity and it allows you to make the choice to go after it and to not listen to all the reasons why not to do it. Right. Because like everything has a million reasons not to do something. Um, and, and it can get, you can get frozen by it, you know? Um, And so it's, you know, it's always interesting because, because uh, I remember this when I was getting to the end of my PhD, which was that like, 
you kind of get that that moment of terror where you realize like okay i don't want to do the thing that everybody else is you know doing and and actually nobody around me seems to want to do that thing um what's going to happen to me like what you know and and i remember looking at the statistics and realizing even then you know when you know industries were crashing and everything was going into recession and everybody's freaked out that it's like the unemployment rate for PhDs is like absolutely vanishingly small, even then. And the reason is that, you know, PhDs, they may not go and do the job they're supposed to, but most people who actually have the capability and the grit to see it, see it through to the end and finish their PhD will find something to do. Like they're not going to sit around and do nothing. They're not going to sit around and collect unemployment checks. Like you know, if you know, if they couldn't get the job that they wanted or or the the role that they wanted, they will they'll find a way to make it happen. And because that's what you learn how to do in your PhD is is to try to make things happen. Um, and but the 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 key to that is is choosing to make it happen, right? And and I you know I think if you've got that sort of clarity of, of purpose or that clarity of, of motivation and sort of understanding what drives you, then when you see the opportunity, you will choose to go after it and, and, you know, and just say, okay, well, I'll figure the rest out later. Mm -hmm. like, and to commit, to commit to yeah, the absolutely. Choice. Yeah. 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 And, 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 but I, I mean, commitment's an interesting thing, right? Because it's like, I think this comes back to the clarity issue, which is like, you should be clear with yourself as to what you're committing to. Right. I think some of that is like, okay, well, what is, what's the end game here? Like, what is it that I'm actually committing to? Because sometimes, you know, sometimes the all out commitment is not, not the right choice. Sometimes it's like, I am committing to doing this thing for six months to see if there's anything here. But if you're clear about that, then when you get to the end of that six months, you're like, okay, you know, I did, I did my six months. This is where I'm at. And then it's like, well, I'm going to do this again, or I'm not going to, I'm going to move on to something else. Like you give yourself a roadmap, you know, um, and, and that way you can sort of make those choices a little bit more clear. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned before, when you, when you talking a little bit about the, the path that, that brought you here today, talked about a leap of faith and, and this elicits something for me and makes me think about fears and, and obstacles that you may perceive. They may be more or less real, more or less uh, important. Uh, but, uh, you know, anyone who decides to, to pivot, to, to do a, a 180, will, uh, will face different fears that may paralyze them in their, in their decision. You know, they may see something beyond, you know, their uh, diploma, etc., but they may be paralyzed by fears. And you talked about different things that, you know, you dealt with, which are normal. And in your case, you know, family, moving family, changing careers to a, to a more a more demanding one uh, when your family is already growing. But, you know, for, for people that are still in grad school, these may be different. It may be peer pressure. Like you were saying, people around you are all doing this one thing, but I'm, you know, I'm thinking of doing the other thing. What do you think? Uh, well, First, did you did you have fears apart from those that you already mentioned? Uh, not, not fears, but these these um, questions that you had to really ask yourself very frankly. Did you have fears or obstacles that you faced and that you surpassed that you think people may be going through the same ones? And how did you find the the, the motivation to you know to break through and to say no? I have clarity. I'm going to commit to this choice. 
So I would say the, yeah, I mean, definitely (laughs) if it's like lots and lots and lots of fears. Um, but I think the key thing here is that like the, the answer is not to get to a place where you're not afraid. Um, because then you're just comfortable and you're probably not doing what it is you want to do. Um, you know, the, the, the key here is to, to be afraid to, to sort of be honest about the fears and then just to do it anyway. Right. I, I, I think it's, you, you kind of have to choose to, you choose which fears to live with. Um, and you know, it's totally, it's totally normal to be afraid. <laughs> like a, a bit like an actor going on stage. A hundred percent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, that's exactly what it is. Right. Like, you know, I don't know any good actors that are not terrified of, of acting, but they also love acting because it's, incredibly you know the the feedback is incredibly rewarding and just the ability to do that um uh you know and to spend your time doing that uh is fantastic um it's very exciting uh it's the same in anything else like uh, you know whether you're starting a company or whether you're you know planning an experiment like you know the the fear of failure runs through everything that we do because if failure wasn't possible then what you're doing probably isn't worth doing. <laughs> like, you know, so, so you kind of just have to accept that it's, you know, the, I, I would not seek to get rid of it. You know, the, the, what you need to do is figure out how to live with it and do stuff anyways. Um, and to feed off of it, you know, it's, it's, you got to use that as, as positive feedback. It's, it's what lets, it's what lets you know that what you're doing is exciting. So would you say, would you say, you know, doing your homework and plan, you know, if you have this leap to take, plan it well? Eh, it, people have different styles, to be honest. Like, um, sure. I, I mean, you know, you can always prepare. Uh, and, and I would advocate, you know, preparing to, to the extent to which you think is feasible. Um, but don't expect those preparations to reduce your fear. Mm-hmm. Even somebody who, you know, just to use the, the acting analogy again, like even somebody who knows every word of their part off by, off by heart is going to be terrified that they're going to forget their lines. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can practice and practice and practice and practice. And absolutely you should, you know, it, you know, I, I don't think you, you can't use it as an excuse not to practice, but don't expect that to make the fear go away. Mm-hmm. In something that, connects to that uh, i'm going to ask my next set of questions which kind of the objective is a bit to bolster uh the confidence of people of, of listeners who can who are out there still you know working to finish either their phd or their masters and and it has to do with the skills you know you talked already a little bit how your specific skills what you studied during a phd had a really you know real uh, effect on what you do today because you found someone who was working on something not only that interested you, but that you were familiar with. But uh, what, I, what I would like to, to, uh, to talk a little bit about is either employers or colleagues that you had in, in, the, in the startups that, that, you, that you worked in, what, what skills stemming from, from your PhD studies, the, the ones that are transferable, which ones were the most valued by either your peers or, or people that, that, uh, that hired you? Wow. Um, it's a very long list. I, I, I mean, I have to say like, you know, 
the the ability to reach into the toolbox and find something, even if it's not the perfect tool to try to work through whatever problem um, happens to be in front of you. I, I mean, that that is a very valuable, you know, a security blanket in that sense, which is like, it's, uh, you know, we just were talking about the fears, like, um, yeah, it's, um, th- there's a lot of things that sort of come up, um, uh, if, if you're really enmeshed in, in a PhD project, uh, you know, and a detailed research program, but the ones that are most valued, I, I mean, it's always surprising. You just, you never really know. Um, I'd say that, you know, the specifics of technical knowledge are very rarely the things that are most valued. Those tend to be, I would say, almost like a selective pressure. It, it kind of guides you in certain directions because you kind of know that stuff already. But the ability to go and find the technical knowledge that you need is is very important. The ability to stay curious um, and to want to know as much as you possibly can about the the, the subject at hand, um, that's, you know, that's incredibly valuable. So having good research tools in the sense where you're like, I can lay down a base of knowledge in a particular area and ask the right questions, the relevant questions to guide that process in a way that's efficient. That's hugely important. But I would say, you know, um, planning, uh, long-term strategic thinking, how to address a, um, a detailed and complex problem in, you know, an ever-shifting external landscape. Like these things are, are very critical. Um, communication skills, the ability to effectively and efficiently tell your story, uh, what you're working on, uh, get people excited about it. You know, the the sort of two-minute thesis competition type thing didn't exist when, when we were doing our PhDs. But um, uh, it's a great innovation. I think that's a, a fantastic practice for... Uh, figuring out ways to effectively communicate the why of what you're doing. Um, and I think that's a, a hugely important skill. You know, one thing that is probably not well taught uh, in PhD programs, but is more and more essential is the ability to collaborate, um, the ability to work in a team environment. Uh, I mean, academia in many ways runs counter to this because your career is, you know, really tied to your personal publication record. And so, uh, you know, a lot of the teamwork skills um, really require you to let that go and, 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 and try to subsume yourself into a a more collective success driven environment. Um, So figuring out how to do that. I mean, look, that's the funny thing. Like if you, if you can figure out how to do that in grad school, it'll pay off huge. Um, but you need to figure out how to do it in a way that will pay off. And so um, I think that is actually something I did learn in grad school uh, that I find very valuable now, but it, I don't think it was taught. It wasn't something that was like, you kind of had to, to learn it the hard way. Yeah. I, I mean, there are some some basic analytical skills, uh, you know, stats um, are always useful. Um, I think understanding data, how it works, uh, the effective data quality, how to make informed decisions, um, you know, um, th- those are all critical um, skills. But yeah, it's it's a very, very long list. And, and I think the ability to be not comfortable, but to at least be functional in a wide variety of situations. The heart of it is is really kind of what 
you know, what drives things forward. It, it allows you to say, okay, I'm going to be the driver behind this. You know, um, I may not always be the right person to do this thing, but at least I know I can go find somebody who can help me out. Um, I can, I can organize enough. I can ask the right question. I can, you know, get over the next challenge. And that really, I think has been the most valuable set of skills that, that, that came out of, out of grad school for me. And now, like on the other side of the coin, let's say, what would be um, the aspects? You already touched on some on some of them, but uh, aspects that coming out of of grad school, you felt that you had, you know, weaknesses uh, on. So, what what does grad school not give you, and and what can listeners start working on themselves if they already have either an entrepreneurial idea or if they know they 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 want to they want to go promote themselves on the job market. What uh, like uh, aspects are not taught in grad school that they should definitely invest on? Yeah. So I don't know. I think that's a very individualized question. Uh, I mean, the challenge there is that if you're setting out to go promote yourself, you know, the, the skills that you are trying to promote should be a good fit for the opportunity for which you're promoting yourself. Um, and so you need to do that, that initial evaluation of like, if I want to do X, what am I missing? Some of those things you might be able to find in the grad school environment. Some of them you might not. And so you need to find a mentor outside of, outside of that immediate environment to try to fill in those gaps. And to be honest, you know, it rarely comes down to a specific line on your resume. I mean, it's, it's really comes down to your ability to convince the, the person that needs to be convinced that you're capable of, of adding value uh, in that area. So, um, I, I, you know, as a random example, like, um, it might be a coding language, right? Like you might be, um, Uh, interested in in more AI driven applications of whatever it is you're working on, and you need to go learn Python. and And you know, there's ways to do that, but you're probably not going to get a job as a as a software developer. <laughs> but you know, and 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 unless you're willing to go back to square one to try to pursue that path, you know, um, it, it might just be good enough to go read some books and then talk to the person you want to work with and convince them that you know enough in that area that you're not going to be a liability. So it's, I think that is a very individualized problem. Um, and, uh, it, you know, you can sort of tackle it like a problem, which is like, okay, you know, if you, I have goal X or I, I'm envisioning outcome X, work backwards and, and try to figure out what's missing and try to figure out what's the most efficient way to sort of fill in those gaps. Um, in your case, so given, given what you, the story you, you, you told and, and the, the way things went for you, uh, it feels that, you know, first you had this interest on uh, intellectual property, which you, you know, you dug into it and, and you got some knowledge on your own. Uh, so, and this, in the end, I feel that, Uh, networking, uh, some serendipity, <laughs> some you know, some chance of meeting the right people uh, at the right time, but uh, had some play in there. But sure. if you hadn't prepared yourself, if you hadn't taught yourself this new language that you didn't have before, you probably couldn't have had these conversations with those people. Oh no, absolutely. And and the thing is too, you, I mean, you can't 
you can't wait for people to hand it to you. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's got to, you know, if, if you're really trying to drive towards something that then you need to find every tool that you can to, to, to make that happen. Right. And so, uh, often the value in that networking and, and those conversations is to figure out where to look for the thing that you're missing. Right. So, I think when I started those conversations, I never even would have known where to look uh, or or what you know what were the missing pieces. What did I need to learn um, to to be able to have the next conversation? And, and I think that's the other thing is that like networking is not exactly it's not a one and done kind of thing. I mean, if if you're going to be effective with it, you, you have to build relationships over time. And and the idea is. The first conversation might be very interesting or it might not and, and might just you know be a dead end. But if it is interesting and there's sort of solid outcomes, um, then you want to follow up on them and you come back to that person a, you know, a few weeks later or a few months later and just say, yeah, you know, uh, based on our last time we talked, I did X, Y, and Z and things are moving here and I've, I've decided to talk to a bunch of other people in this space and Oh, and do you know anybody else I could talk to or, you know, ask for more recommendations? Because, you know, I, I mean, the list of people that I've talked to in trying to figure out how to build a company from scratch is immense. And, and certainly not all of them do I have relationships with, but the one, the conversations that have been most valuable are the ones that have been built, have been built over time into relationships where now I know that if I have problems or if I'm trying to work through a certain situation that I have sort of four or five different people that I can call or bounce ideas off of. And, you know, it's, it, and that gives you a lot of confidence so that, that, that gives you a lot of sort of, you know, ability to, to, to move through things or, or to, to feel good about how things have gone. So that that's uh, yeah, I, I really like that you say that because one of the things that I feel is very important and, uh, and uh, that I feel in grad school it's not given that everyone is going to have them is, uh, is uh, mentors, uh, people who help you, who, who, you know, who, who kind of champion you and help you move towards higher and higher stages in your, in your development. And, uh, and I imagine at your stage, you have a successful business that you run, but you, it's interesting to hear, but I have people that I recur to when, you know, when I have questions, when I have doubts, and, and uh, to me, it, it kind of it kind of confirms uh, this, this feeling that I have that mentors can, and and if you are lucky enough to have them, you know, they play a very very important role in your in your uh, career development, but in your personal development also. Absolutely, and the, the thing I would add with that is that you know, in grad school, there's lots of opportunities to get mentors and and to sort of build those mentorship type relationships, but most of the mentors or potential mentors you're going to find in grad school are going to be very effective mentors if you want to stay in academia because that's what they've done. That's what they know. Um, and so if you're looking outside of that, you know, outside of that space into other different avenues, you need to go find new mentors. You need to go find new new ways of looking at the world, new ways of looking at your career, new ways of looking at the problems that you want to tackle. Um, because if you just sort of stay in, in that network or if you stay in that space, then that's the feedback you're going to get. Like, you know, so you have to, you have to be very aware of, you know, where your mentors are coming from and what is the perspective they have to bring to whatever it is you want to do. Um, 
because, you know, it's, it's very easy to get stuck in these sort of self-enforcing little loops of, of, of people that all think the same way or, or, you know, all feel comfortable in the same environment. Mm -hmm. I've had, I've had uh, guests uh, on the show that mentioned their PI as, uh, as mentors who, saw that, that that these people were not going to follow through and they said well you know finish your masters and, and go look at this domain look at that domain so it can happen but it's true and i agree with you that most of the time in that universe you'll get people who are you know tuned towards mentoring you within that universe i i, I totally agree with you but i, I mean like that's i mean that's very effective mentorship if what the person is doing is saying, Hey, you know, you're probably not cut out for this, or you're not, you know, going to be happy in this particular environment. Stop talking to me, go talk to other people. Here's five other people I know, right? Because, you know, your, your PI or, or your committee members or, you know, the, the PI down the hall, they all know other people. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, some of them maybe not the most social people in the world, but most of them know other people, um, and so most of them should be able to put you in touch with other interesting people who are doing things that that you might want to talk to them about. I totally agree. The thing, the thing that might be an obstacle sometimes, and you know, I'm 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 here uh, on the microphone with you, and but I'm an introvert, and I think uh, it's really cool that you say that. Just so people that are out there, you know, don't fall into the trap of thinking, I am alone. I, you know, I, I am. I can talk with my PI, uh, and and that's it. And because there's two things. First, they're not alone. There's colleagues, and now universities and grad schools offer a lot of uh, possibilities of creating community in different ways. Uh, but people around you, other PIs, uh, colleagues may have looked for the same thing that you're looking for and, and may, you know, give you a shortcut in research that you're doing. But more importantly, PIs know other people and they'll know people who, who went out of academia and started a startup, you know. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's interesting about this is that, um, you know, if I think back to my experience, part of the problem is that a, a lot of people you know, as you mentioned, tend to be somewhat introverted. And so it's very easy to focus on your research and on your problem for four years. And then all of a sudden you're two years away from graduating and you're like, Oh my God, I need to figure stuff out. And it's sort of compressed. And this whole process that we're talking about becomes very compressed in terms of time. And there's this giant cliff that you're worried about going over the other end of. And, and I think that's where a lot of people run into problems because because I think honestly, uh, even if you are introverted, if you if you don't have that time pressure, th these things can evolve. You know, these are relationships that evolve over time, and 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 opportunities present themselves over time. If it's something you're doing all the time, and not just six months before you graduate, right? And so um, I, I'm sure you know a lot of people who run labs, their phones light up every sort of March when people are, are six months away from submitting their thesis to try to figure out what the hell to do next. Um, and, and it's all these people who have been, who've been there for four or five years, you know, that, that they haven't talked to about it before. And I think that's the problem because it doesn't give any time for the more serendipitous interactions or the PI to think, oh yeah, you know, my brother-in-law does this crazy thing and, and um, you know, might 
be interested in talking to you and, and, you know, and it's crazy. Cause like, this is stuff that, that happens all the time. Like I, I think in back in the history of, of our company, like, you know, I have sort of fairly deep business relationships now that started because the, the surgical resident who shared a desk with me when I was starting the company happened to know a guy whose dad was a lawyer in New York who, you know, knew a guy who was, uh, worked on, on FDA submissions in DC. And like, you know, it's just these random connections um, but you follow them through and, you know, and then it's like, so, and then it turns out, I know we were talking to a pathologist, you know, just last week and the pathologist is marrying the daughter of the guy who put me in touch with the lawyer. And like, it's, it's just, it's a very small world, but you don't find these things out until you have time to sort of run into a lot of people. So it's, it's, you know, um, you don't have to be this sort of like hyperactive extrovert and like be constantly, um, you know, sourcing new people. These things will sort of take care of themselves if you give it enough time uh, and you're open to, to, to the opportunities. Um, but it's, yeah, it's definitely not something you want to leave for the, for, you know, the last year or two, you, you, you need to be, working on it always, even after you finish grad school. Um, it, th- these are the types of conversations that will help push things forward. Definitely. And in your case, uh, what would you say, you know, if you think of the, of the mentors that you've had in the past and that, you, and that you may still have now, what would you say is uh, uh, the, the most important lesson or the, the most important couple of lessons that you've learned from, from your mentors, uh, but in the scope of developing new capacities, new skills that, that you didn't have before in a new universe that, that you got into? Um, I don't know. That's a tricky question. I mean, I honestly, to, uh, you know, I, I don't think I've ever really had one particular mentor that where I've learned sort of a lot of new skills or a lot of new perspectives from it's, it's often been a vast collection of people. Um, what I find is that, you know, there are relationships that, that evolve over time and, and that you learn different things from different people that maybe not are directly obvious. Um, but all of a sudden you find yourself in a situation where it reminds you of something that, that, you know, somebody said to you once, like, you know, I, I, an example that springs to mind, um, I remember working with Kevin, uh, early on. And, and one of the things that makes Kevin very compelling and he, he has a way of really connecting with people very immediately and in a very efficient way. And, and, but at the same time, he has a way of sort of flipping that switch off and moving, moving on, moving on to the next problem and sort of not getting too stuck on a particular interaction. And, um, and at first it feels a little weird. And then all of a sudden you realize that it can be a very effective tool, um, in the right situation. And, um, you know, I, am not a neurosurgeon. I, I'm not sort of faced with the prospect of cutting somebody's skull open on a regular basis, but, but there are lots of people who do that. And, 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 you know, there, there's a skill set that comes with that. And, um, you know, I don't think it's directly ap- applicable to my everyday, but there are definitely times when I'm like, okay, I need to know how to engage very quickly with this person, take their problems very seriously, help them solve it, and then disengage just as quickly because I can't, you know, uh, for whatever reason, get pulled into this problem, you know, too deeply. 
Um, so it's just, it, that's just sort of a random example, but, but there's lots of things like that where I, I find that like, if you're observant and you spend the time working with somebody and, and, and talking to them and, you know, kind of working through different problems, you'll see that everybody sort of has different approaches or different perspectives and that, you know, being able to have a library of, of, you know, of perspectives, um, can be really helpful um, because you don't always know which which tool set is going to be the most important to sort of deal with whatever problem you're you're facing at the time. So, um, yeah, I would say you know stay open to to as much feedback as possible. <laughs> it's like uh, having a hive mind that you can turn to and, and say, okay, I have a problem. Yeah, absolutely. No, there 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 is definitely some of that. Like honestly, I have been through a number of situations over the last few years where where it is literally that, where it is like, I pick up, uh, you know, I, you know, I go through notebooks and calendars and I find a list of names and I'm calling as, you know, as many people as I think are relevant. And, and I try to get as many perspectives on, on things as possible. And hopefully I can find nuggets of the solution in in all those different conversations. Uh, um, But uh, yeah. And it's funny. I think you'll find that like, when you do that, people converge on different perspectives pretty quickly. Like you'll be able to disentangle it. Sometimes it's not what you need. Sometimes you don't need the consensus. Sometimes you need the the, the outside voice to kind of cut through the noise. But um, but that's why it's worth having as many conversations as you can because you don't know who that outside voice is going to be. So it's you, you got to talk it through as, as with as many people as you can. Yeah. You know, now you said the word conversations, and I feel that it's kind of a theme that we've been talking about since the beginning, you know, when, when you were looking for a new career and you talked with as many people as possible and today you keep talking to as many people as possible. So, yeah, well, it, it's funny. I, I mean, I, I remember I was at this thing recently and it was with a bunch of other sort of very rapidly growing startups. And, and we were talking with this guy who is you know, sort of an executive coach type, but, it, but he's mostly just he's a very seasoned entrepreneur. And it was a room full of CEOs and he sort of looked around and, you know, almost all of us were first time CEOs. And he's like, what is your job description now? Like, what is it that you do? And most of us were kind of like taken aback because we'd spent, most of us had spent years doing everything. Right. And, and now things change and, and what you realize, and this is what he sort of told us is like your, your job description at this point is, is literally to do nothing, but to manage everything. And the way that you do that effectively is, is by having conversations and by, you know, doing the work with, with your team, with your people to have the right conversations uh, and to figure out how that goes. And that's, I mean, it, it sounds pretty banal, but it's, it's, it's actually, it's actually very, very hard work because you need to understand everybody's job to the point where you can help them work through the problems that they're having. If you don't get to deal with the easy stuff, that's what they're there to do. That's what you pay them to do. Um, but when they're having problems with whatever their job happens to be, you're the, you're the last resort. (laughs) You're you're the, you're the conversation that they have before they give up and you can't afford them to give up. So you have to have that conversation go as well as it possibly can. And sometimes the end of that conversation is, Oh, let's go find 
this other person for you to go talk to, <laughs> but you're the person who has to, to, to make that happen. Right. And so, so th- those types of skill sets, that type of dynamic becomes extremely important to sort of scaling an enterprise, like, and, and, and helping the, the company overall grow. That is, that is super interesting. And, you know, I, it's the first time I, I actually uh, have a conversation myself about what what it means to be a, a CEO, and and uh, it's you know it sounds challenging. It sounds like you probably you know your brain must be going at high speed for a large part of the day, <laughs> but uh, it's it, it it can be yeah for sure. I mean I think part of the other challenge is also not like is not drifting, not drifting off in the sense that like, it's easy to get stuck on the same problem and just, you know, um, drift with it where you're like, why isn't this, why isn't this getting solved? <laughs> and so sometimes you need to kind of break your own malaise or break your own perspective on it. And so that's, again, you know, finding the right person to go talk to and to try to cut through that is, is also very important. Excellent. Well, you know, now we're we're actually getting to my final question, and uh, we we talked about a lot, uh, you know, and and a lot of things that are inter- interesting to me because it's a universe that I that I don't really know the, the you know the startup uh, universe. But I imagine that there's a lot of people out there that are in grad school and that have uh, maybe an entrepreneurial idea, and um, and that may be looking for you know what's my next step what should i do before i finish how should i go about uh, setting up the stage for for what comes after and and the last question is is just you know just to uh, ask you uh, what two or three basic strategies or principles these people could uh, could follow starting today to put in place a realistic uh, transition project to that next stage of their life but maybe given that that's where you are now, specifically if they have uh, a startup idea, an entrepreneurial uh, idea that uh, that's their plan for after they graduate. So, I, I mean, I don't think my answer will be too surprising to you, but I, I mean, look, we're, we're at a time where there are loads of resources available um, to, to people coming out of grad school, especially with entrepreneurial ideas. Um, there's tons of really good accelerator programs you know, be it Y Combinator or uh, the Creative Destruction Lab program, which is a program that we did um, that was phenomenal. Um, but honestly, you know, the, the biggest value to a lot of those programs is that it introduces you to um, lots of other founders, uh, lots of other people trying to do similar things. Um, it may not be the exact same company or the exact same technology, but but they're all struggling with you know different varieties of the same problems. Um, and so talking to them can be hugely helpful. Um, I think you'll find very quickly that the the communities that get built around certain industries and the startup uh, culture around those industries uh, is one that uh, you know can be very accepting and could be very uh, encouraging. Um, so so getting a, as deep into that as possible um, is very helpful. Um, you know, those programs are often great ways to find mentors. So finding other mentors within the industry that you're sort of going after 
again, is hugely, hugely valuable. Um, and you need to just start having those conversations because it's through those conversations that you start to put together your plan, your strategy, um, you know, um, figuring out what problems you need to solve to, to, to move things forward. Um, whether it's, you know, putting together your business plan, choosing what market to focus on, finding ways to raise capital. Um, you know, these are, common problems to, to every company. And, you know, the solutions are very different. They're as different as your company is, but the, the, the core problems are, are very similar. And so having the opportunity to go out for a beer with, with, you know, um, other founders or people who have, you know, uh, founded and successfully exited companies, um, that's, that'll be hugely important. And, and I think you'll find, the more that you have those conversations, the more that you sort of hone your story, um, the deeper into the the core of the problem you'll get, and 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 the the easier you will be able to to move things forward. Um, I would say honestly, the the biggest hurdle that you have to get over at that point is really just choosing to start it. Um, you know, really getting yourself to the point where you're like, no, absolutely, I'm going to do this. I'm all in. Um, and I think, you know, I think back to a lot of this, the starting times of, of companies that I know, or, you know, people that are sort of at the same stage that we are, um, that was the biggest challenge. The people that sort of don't, that, you know, that don't make it are often the ones that don't go all in. I mean, you, you really can't do this half-assed. I mean, you, you, you know, um, it, it, and you have to be sort of prepared for, the degree to which this will blow up your life for a while. <laughs> um, uh, and, but I, but I, honestly, if it's, you know, if it's worth doing, then it's worth going all in for. So it, it just, you kind of have to, that's just kind of the name of the game. <laughs> well, that's honest advice. And, uh, you know, it's got, it's fair and balanced, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, I think it, I think, um, this was very a very interesting conversation. I am going to share the links to these resources that you mentioned just before. Um, and um, actually, did you have links uh, or, or um, social media that you wanted to share with the audience? Well, certainly, I would encourage everybody to you know, if anybody has an interest in uh, biomedical engineering or or medical optics, to to check out the company and what we're doing. So it's uh, ODS Medical. Uh, the website is www.odsmed.com. Um, you can, we're on LinkedIn as well. And so you can find us there, um, and, uh, encourage everybody to, to check out what we're doing. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if there's other people who are interested in, uh, entrepreneurship in Montreal, especially there's loads of other programs uh, for them to check out. Um, there's the, the Dobson cup at McGill is fantastic. Um, and I believe there's the X one accelerator that's associated with that. Probably check that out. There's the Centec uh, Center as well. Um, there's also CTS, uh, which is um, the Compass de Technologie de Santé, um, which is a great uh, program for, for med tech startups. Um, also District 3, um, the, the incubator that's associated with Concordia is, is fantastic as well. And I, you know, I know a number of other companies have come through there. I'm trying to think if there's other programs in Montreal to check out. Uh, those are the, yeah. And, and creative destruction lab, um, which is all over the country and now in New York and in Oxford as well. Um, uh, strongly encourage people to check that out. 
Um, and um, yeah, that's that's <laughs> those are the ones that are at the top of mind. But oh, Rebel Bio is a good one. Yeah, it's and and look, if people are you know if people have more questions or they want to get in touch with me directly, um, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn, and I'm uh, happy to follow up uh, and um, walk people through stuff if if they're curious. So. Excellent. That's that's uh, very cool of you. And uh, I will share all of the links that that Chris mentioned on the show notes of his episode. So, you know, you can uh, you can all visit the the page and uh, and go from there. So, Chris, this was a great interview. Uh, thank you so much. Um, it was a pleasure talking to you, and and especially because I think we touched on on many aspects that that were far from from uh, what what I've talked what I've talked with uh, with the guests that I've had so far. So thank you, thanks a lot. No, it's great. No, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure, uh, and I hope I hope people find this useful. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.